Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, children of the night. We are in North Carolina on our summer vacation headed south. Our first stop in the Tar Heel State will be at Brown Mountain. From the Blue Ridge Parkway, notably the Brown Mountain Light Overlook or the Green Mountain Overlook at milepost 310 and 301, respectively, we'll look at Brown Mountain in the evening and look for lights. September through the beginning of November is a great time to see these lights. What are the lights? Nobody knows, but going back centuries, people have recorded seeing these lights on the mountain, even when the area flooded, knocking out all electric, and trains were out. Still, the lights were seen. These orbs, frequently seen after a warm evening rain, will rise up from the mountain, hover, and wobble about 15 feet in the air, then disappear. They usually appear red or orange, and if you're curious to see what they look like, I had no problem finding pictures of them and even videos on YouTube. They don't seem to be dangerous, but no one has an explanation of what they are, what causes them, or what, if anything, they mean. Let's get to our stories. Our first story comes from Gary B. Phillips. He writes short stories, speculative fiction, though most of his work is dark in nature and is either straight-up horror or has horrific elements. The story we will hear tonight, A House Divided, was published in Lacuna. Gary was born in California, grew up in Arizona, lived a few years in my home state, Ohio, and now he's back in Arizona. He has a beautiful wife, two adorable daughters, and three cats. When not writing, Gary enjoys reading, playing video games, building haunted houses, and hoping for rain. And now, Gary B. Phillips, A House Divided. 
Ich gestehe. I confess. I killed him. Though that word does not do the act justice, I assure you. It was a cold and calculated murder. I tell you this now because no court in the world would find me guilty. He was in the study, sitting at his mahogany desk, a ledger spread out before him. The stresses of his life had creased his brow and thinned his hair, and he looked much older than his twenty-nine years. I had watched him perform this secret ceremony for years, stealing their fortune one fenning at a time. He got up from the desk and paced to and from the window, glancing out, though never noticing the garden walls that hid the streets and factories of Brandenburg. The yellow-leaved golden elms stood like silent guardians around the topiary garden. Gold-flame honeysuckle vines crawled up the gardener's house and yearned for the sun behind the day's dead gray sky. My body ached from watching the man's wearisome ritual, and I stretched and settled back into place as quietly as I could. He stopped and turned his ear to the ceiling. Hello? he asked. Had he heard my bones creak? It didn't matter. I saw my chance. A loose stone provided the perfect weapon. One strong blow to the head fell the man, and he crumpled to the polished floor. His blood pooled at my feet. The constable and doctor came at once and examined the body, then the stone and the high ceiling with the hole that matched the broken piece. Cassus fortuitus, an act of God, said the constable. Or a poor craftsman, said the doctor with a laugh too long for his own wit. I smiled and breathed a sigh of relief. A damp wind blew through the hallway, and Elizabeth pulled her shawl around her. She stood outside the study with the maidservants and listened to the two men explain the circumstances of the man's death to the stoic master of the house and his grieving daughter. The servant girls wept as the body was taken away, but Elizabeth did not cry. My first memory was of her, Elizabeth. She was alone in the quarter she shared with the servant girls, sitting at a white vanity. An ill-fitted camisole hung off her shoulders as she combed her long chestnut hair and hummed to herself. Her fox terrier hid under the vanity and nipped at her calloused pink feet. I was young then, and watched her from that room. She did not know I was there. The other girls, Hungarian and Polish and Jewish, may have suspected me, though they never voiced it to her, only exchanged nervous glances and hushed whispers as they polished furniture in the sitting-room or change sheets in the bedrooms. I watched Elizabeth dress and undress, and read to the servant girls. It wasn't lust, not then, just the curiosity of a child. Elizabeth did not mourn or fast after his death. Instead, she kept herself busy attending to the needs of the lady of the house while she grieved. Each night, after seeing the mistress to bed, Elizabeth returned to her own quarters, said a silent prayer, and removed the rose-cut garnet-adorned necklace that she kept hidden under her garments during the day. She placed it gently under the base of the candle-holder by her bed. The night after the funeral, Elizabeth retired to her quarters with the girls. She had been offered her own room when she became the lady's maid, but chose to stay with the girls. She read to them from a tattered book of poetry that the master had collected in his travels. She spoke the words to them in English first, taking great care to pronounce them, and then translating it to German. And when I could no longer look, 
I blessed his grace that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so it was just. After they were asleep, she put the necklace on without hiding it, took the brass candle holder from her bedside, and wandered the halls until she found herself in one of the home's many hidden passageways. The array of gems around her neck sparkled in the flickering candlelight as she walked the corridor and entered the room where she used to meet her lover in secret. Why did it happen? she said. Why did you leave me? She cried there on the cold floor. I wanted to comfort her, to tell her I loved her, but I could not. She seemed to age overnight. Her body was still young, but her countenance was vacant with careworn lines where there had been none before. My victim came to me that night, dried blood on his translucent head. He asked why I had killed him. When she loved you, you only loved yourself, I said. He cursed my name and begged to see her. As with the other spirits, he was not free to roam the hallways and displace the living. Not without my permission. In time you will prove yourself useful, and then I will grant your request, I said. He wailed in distress, a sound that echoed through the halls and woke the living. In the weeks following the funeral, the newspapers ran rife with speculation contrary to the official cause of death. A deadly affair, heir to Richter wealth murdered by spurned wife after affair with maidservant. The town ate up every word, like a dog lapping its vomit up from the street. The servants spoke of these rumors often, in hushed tones around Elizabeth, and never around the mistress. Each night Elizabeth walked the path to the study and cried on the floor. When she did sleep, it was restless, pervaded with nightmares. She told the girls of the dreams each morning as they prepared the table for breakfast the dark creature that watched her from the shadows of the house. It's nothing but a dream, of course, she would tell them. I saw the truth in her eyes. Elizabeth's nightmares worsened as summer plodded to autumn and then winter. In her dreams, the dark creature entered her room, rose up above her bed, and whispered revelations that she did not remember in the morning. The servant girls went to the mistress and pleaded with her. They told her that Elizabeth was afflicted with nightmares. Nonsense! She is keeping up with her duties, the mistress said, dismissing them back to their own chores. The first snow of the year fell on a cold November evening. The servants gathered in the small common room to be together and warm by the fire. They reclined on the curved camelback sofa and sang hymns together. Elizabeth sat at the solitary desk, away from the warmth of the fire, and wrote in her journal. Her pen scribbled along the page in great curves. After she finished, she wiped the pen clean on the small cloth under the ink reservoir, closed the journal, and excused herself. In her quarters she found the little brown bottle of laudanum. The label said it was from Baltimore. And I wondered what wicked path it had traveled to arrive into her hands. I saw tears well up in her eyes and realized with horror that she knew exactly how it had come into her possession and what she would use it for. She closed her eyes and took a deep swig. She winced from the bitter taste and stifled a cough in the crook of her arm. The wind howled outside and masked her sobs as she took another deep drink. 
I did the one thing I could. I let out a guttural and unrecognizable moan that frightened the servant girls out of the common room and into their quarters. They found Elizabeth there, already unconscious. Again the spirit of my victim came to me. She's dying, I beg of you, he said, his incorporeal face twisted with grief. I had murdered him. I owed him at least this much. I allowed him to go to her. The doctor was called upon and arrived with haste. Every member of the house gathered to watch as he inserted a small rubber tube into her mouth. He fed it in and listened to her stomach. When he was satisfied with the position of the tube, he had the girl with the driest eyes hold it as he poured a small amount of saline in. He then pressed his lips to the tube and siphoned it back out, repeating the process several times. He monitored her through the morning and left late that afternoon with strict instructions to keep her hydrated. She recovered slowly and her sleep no longer seemed troubled. While awake she read books of poetry to the delight of the maidservants. She laughed with them and smiled often. Something had changed in her. I summoned my victim. What did you say to her that night? I asked him. I saved her, he said. How? I asked. I told her this was not a home worth dying in. A fortnight later her health returned in full. She awoke early and kissed each of the girls as they slept. Then she removed her necklace, placed it on the vanity, and left. Summers and winters passed and the world went to war. Revolution came and the monarchy crumbled. But the promise of the revolution failed and the golden age never came. Even the Richter family fortune dwindled. Elizabeth's contemporaries aged, had daughters and granddaughters of their own. Loyalty to the family kept the servants caring for the old home, though the family could seldom afford to pay their wages. The servants spoke often of Elizabeth, and each of the girls received letters from her. I have seen mountains larger than any country and a tower to rival them. I have traveled across deserts and seen ancient places. Beauty and love is in every place. Look for it there. I miss you all. On a cloudless blue February morning, Elizabeth returned home. The lines on her face were now valleys and canyons, a map of the places she had been. She followed the snow-covered path past the wrought-iron gate. Ivy-covered walls flanked the estate's front door. The once proud face of the manor had crumbled with war and disrepair. When she reached the door, she did not knock, simply opened it and walked in. A small girl running through the corridor spotted Elizabeth in the foyer. Hello, the girl said. Hello, I'm Elizabeth. The girl skipped into the foyer, the red gems on her necklace bouncing with each step. That's a beautiful necklace, said Elizabeth. My mum gave it to me. Is she here? She's cleaning. Follow me. Elizabeth did as she was told and followed the skipping girl down the hallway. She let the tips of her fingers brush against the cold stone as she walked. I didn't know you could miss a home like this, she said to herself. I smiled. My soul was warm and the fires burned brighter in their hearths. The master of the house was informed of her return and a small celebration was planned. The cooks prepared a feast. That evening they ate liver dumpling soup and roasted duck with red cabbage, 
and for dessert black forest gâteau. The whole of the house gathered, men, women, and children, servant and master alike. They all sat together. Music and gluvine and mirth flowed from the dining room. After the children had been sent off to bed, Elizabeth told of the great plague spreading across the land. Man turned against man, neighbor against neighbor, and friend against friend. They took up uniforms with strange insignias and marched across the land. I have seen them kill, she said. They will come here, and they will kill us. I will not allow it, said the master of the house. You will have no choice, Elizabeth said. Then we will hide them. Elizabeth retired to the guest room early that night, weary from her travels. There were three small knocks at the door, and when she opened it, she found the young girl from the foyer on the other side. In her hand she held the garnet necklace. The girl held it out and placed the necklace in Elizabeth's hands. It's yours, the girl said. Mum told me. Not anymore. It was from long ago, and I no longer need it. Please keep it. Wear it for tonight. I want to see how it looks on you. Elizabeth smiled and let her fingers slide across the red gems. Okay, Elizabeth said. She crouched to the little girl's level and pulled her hair aside. I'll give it back in the morning. Will you put it on me? The little girl hooked the necklace around Elizabeth's neck. Elizabeth squeezed the girl's hands and kissed her forehead. Go back to bed before your mother catches you, Elizabeth said. That night they came. I heard them first, a low rumble across the earth's crust. Then I saw them. Over the high walls of the manor, they marched into town with great mechanical beasts at their side, Panzerkampfwagen. Each home was searched. Gunfire and screams rose up from the streets and within the walls of neighboring houses. Finally they came to the master's home. He opened the door and let the twin blue-eyed soldiers in. They did not greet him, but instead wandered the foyer and examined the photographs that hung on the walls. Are there Jews in this house? One of them asked. No, said the master. The master stood upright, defiant, as the soldiers pushed him aside and searched his home. Elizabeth helped the mistress check that the women and children were well hidden. Now hide yourself, the mistress told her. Elizabeth returned to the corridor near the study where her love had died. The door to the study was locked and had been for some time. Twin sets of footsteps echoed on the polished floor, louder with each step. I extinguished the lights in the hallway so that she was in darkness. She mouthed a silent thank you and pressed herself against the wall, in the darkest spot. The soldiers rounded the corner and stopped. They peered into the darkness, no more than six meters from her. Cigarette, one of the soldiers said. They fumbled in the dark, rustled through coat pockets and flicked a lighter to life. A small flame rose in the darkness and lit a cigarette for each man. The red stones around Elizabeth's neck glimmered in the flame's flickering light, and the lighter snapped shut. The world was silent for a moment, and then Elizabeth heard the slow creak of leather as their pistols were drawn from their holsters. Two shots rang out in the darkness. Elizabeth's blood pooled at my feet.
It did not take the soldiers long to find the hidden men, women, and children. The family was labeled as traitors and led out to the dirty streets to be executed. They stripped the curtains from my windows, exposing me to the world. My storehouse was pillaged and they drank my wines. My doors, my smile became firewood to burn my body. They tore down my corridors and quarters, the wings that stretched between my spires. My iron cresting became the broken crown of a once great king. When they had their fill, they left my skeleton as a warning to others. I hated them for what they had done, for their bloodlust, their heartlessness, their cowardice. They raped and stripped me, destroying my beauty and the companionship my walls had held for so many years. Worst of all, they had murdered my love. And then the wind shuddered against my creaking remains, whispering, You killed hers first. That was Gary B. Phillips' House Divided, as read by Nicole Doolin. We haven't heard from Nicole for a while, have we? She's got a great voice. I love hearing her read. Nicole writes fiction, poetry, and plays. Her work has appeared in the Wilderness House Literary Review, of course, right here, Tales to Terrify, 3 AM Magazine, 365 Tomorrow's, Flash Shot, and the literary anthology Wilderness House Literary Review. The best of Volume 3. Additionally, her stage plays have been presented in festivals. Nicole is also a voice actor who has performed for various mediums, audiobooks, podcast, e-learning, game, film, video, and radio. She produces a podcast called Audio Literature Odyssey in which she narrates classic literature by the likes of Austin, Poe, James, and more. Furthermore, Nicole has performed contemporary narrations for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts such as The No Sleep Podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Crime City Central. And, of course, right here on Tales to Verify. Thank you, Nicole. Next up will be a story from Philip Roberts. Philip lives in Nashaw, New Hampshire, and holds a master's in education and a bachelor's degree in creative writing. As a beginner in the publishing world, he's a member of both the Horror Writers Association and the New England Horror Writers Association, and has had numerous short stories published in a variety of publications, such as the Beneath the Surface Anthology, Midnight Echo, and The Horror Zine. A full anthology of Philip's short stories entitled Passing Through can be found on the Amazon Kindle store. More information on his works can be found at www.philipmroberts.com and, of course, link will be in the show notes. And now, Philip Roberts of The Past. There had once been seven occupants in the two-story townhome. Russell and his wife Emma, the owners of the building, left it first, taken at the age of sixty-nine by icy roads and five hours of intensive care. They willed the building to their tenants. For twenty years Cleveland Opligar watched three of the remaining five depart. Only he and Lysandra Bulnick remained on the late summer night in early July when Cleveland set down the book he'd been reading, pulled back his curtains, and saw the man staring at the house. 
He appeared too purposeful to be a bum, and somehow too high class for Cleveland to take him as a thief. The unabashed way in which he stood by the street corner and watched the home deeply frightened. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Tighten the 81-year-old Cleveland, ill-equipped for whatever danger this bizarre intruder might pose. The man wore dark clothing, face covered in a day or two worth of stubble, brown hair combed neatly. Every so often he glanced down the street, surveying the area with clear intent, before his eyes would return to the building, to Cleveland, or so he thought, until it finally dawned on him, that the man's eyes rose beyond Cleveland's window to the floor above him. Cleveland's own gaze shifted to the ceiling and Lisa's room. Though the home had held only the two of them for four years now, Cleveland couldn't recall the last time they had spoken. Even when the home brimmed with life, Lisa had been a solitary woman. Still, Cleveland considered it his duty to warn her about the stranger. He probably should have purchased a good walker years ago, his pace always slow and plodding, head hunched forward, lower back a mess of pain, but stubbornness kept him from doing so. He could never quite dispel the memory of his own grandfather tightly grasping those metal handles, and something in Cleveland still hesitated to accept his age. The stairs proved most challenging. The thick oak banister saw him through it, placed him among closed doors, once filled with the last people Cleveland thought he'd ever call friends. He trudged down the hallway to the far door on the left, and the light piercing through the crack underneath it. He knocked gently. "'Yes?' Lisa called out hesitantly, her voice infused with more confusion than fear. I need to talk to you. 
the door opened to reveal the slightly younger Lysandra, dressed in a light blue nightgown with a peach-colored robe tied over it. Six years younger, Lisa was in better shape than Cleveland, and might have passed for younger than seventy-five, if not for the way the skin wrinkled around her eyes and mouth. "'What do you need?' she asked him. "'Can I come in?' She stepped back to allow him entry, her movement more fluid than Cleveland's, as he stepped into the room and up to her window, the glass open to allow in the muggy air. "'There's a man out there,' Cleveland whispered, even though the man surely couldn't hear them. Concern twitched in the corner of Lisa's mouth when she glanced through the curtain towards the stranger. Cleveland watched her expression intently, the concern shifting into both understanding and wary acceptance, but never once into fear as she pulled back. "'There'll be more,' she sighed as she ran her fingers through tangles of white curly hair. "'More men?' he asked, confused, eyes jumping between Lisa and the open window. She nodded absently, eyes reflecting memories Cleveland was suddenly very curious about. "'You're telling me there are people after you? Who are they?' Though he'd never actually seen her drink, Cleveland couldn't admit surprise at the size of the bourbon she pulled out of her nightstand, another unopened bottle visible briefly before the drawer closed. She took a mouthful with the air of an expert. The last time Cleveland had attempted a shot that large, he dribbled half of it down his chin when the fire touched his throat and made him cough for a minute straight. "'Took them a little longer this time,' she said. Cleveland took up a seat at her desk while Lisa sat on her bed. "'Is he a bookie?' Cleveland asked, searched his mind for whatever situations might have led to people chasing her. She laughed at the suggestion, shook her head no. Cleveland pressed on, his voice a bit lower as he leaned in. "'Are you a felon?' "'I wish it were so simple,' Lisa said, gesturing towards him with the bottle. But Cleveland shook his head. She nodded and downed another gulp herself. "'I'll keep this short. If this is a problem with the law, it would be best to—' Lisa brought up her hand, but her expression silenced Cleveland the most. "'My parents were part of a larger cult. I only know basic details because I was too young at the time to understand what was going on. What I do know is that they summoned something horrible into the world, but it wouldn't give them what they wanted.' "'Summoned?' Cleveland asked, almost wanting to smile a bit, to laugh at that word but Lisa continued without acknowledging his interruption. I was eight when they tore it from whatever realm it had existed in. Something in me hadn't believed the reality of what I saw, even when standing in the barn with the rest of them. I just—I uh, think I considered it a play. The creature had small leather wings, and its skin almost like clothing, like fabric had been sewn into the flesh but its face, the emptiness to its thin eyes, it scared me. The process of bringing it over hadn't looked pleasant, either, cuts dripping with thick purplish-red all over its thin body. A few of them had hooks attached to long poles that they grabbed it with. The thing looked weak, 
didn't fight back much as they dug their blades in and pulled it down to the middle of the floor. The barn door was open a little behind me, and there were four candles providing light near the middle of the group. The thing didn't look at me ever, I don't think, but I can recall vividly the smile it showed my father. A large string of skin cut its mouth in two, sort of made it look like two mouths cut far up the sides of its face. But I know it smiled when my father finished talking. It opened its mouth wide, and it spit on them, sort of a thick mist. I pulled away in disgust. Like I said, a part of me accepted it all as a play, and the notion of being spit on repulsed me, so I stumbled out of the barn. I know I saw my father's reddened face, and his fist coming down across the side of the creature's head. Uh, we weren't rich, I wouldn't say, but our home was large. We lived in West Virginia then, out in the woods. Land wasn't expensive, nor were supplies. I remember the bright stars in a clear sky, the moon just a sliver, our St. Bernard, Ken, tied to a banister on the front porch. He whined and howled as I approached him, tried to move towards the barn, and I think my intent was to calm him, tell him it was only a play, just fun. When I reached the first steps, and when the wails of pain and rage started, the effect had already overcome me. I stared into Ken's large and drooping face, but suddenly despised him, wanting nothing but to punish him. I'm now aware that in the barn my parents and their friends were tearing each other apart, just as I picked up the shovel along the side of the porch and brought it down on the head of my dog. He whined and struggled against the ropes, unwilling to fight me, but unable to get away. At some point the barn caught fire, but I didn't notice then, and even though it burned right behind me, I have no memory of seeing the flames. All I can remember is Ken's blood-matted fur and wet eyes staring up. Police woke me the next morning. I lay in the grass in front of my home, the ashes of the barn and all those who had been in it still smoldering, and my bloodied, whimpering dog huddled beneath the porch. I had no memory of the night before. Ken never dared come close to me again. One of our neighbors took him in shortly before my aunt came for me. And the man? Cleveland asked. Her expression forced him to accept Lisa's belief in her words, no matter what he thought about the meaning of them. It turns out that, in a way, the demon had given them what they asked for, though not in the right form. I still couldn't tell you what it was supposed to do, but they had desired some of its blood, unaware of the effects such a direct exposure would have on them. All of those it spit on died from the initial madness, except for me. But that doesn't mean I was spared completely, because it seeped into my skin. You see, when they first found me, they thought I'd been older thought I'd known more about their business, and they told me what they needed. They understood what the demon had done to all of us, and they told me my blood had been changed. 
Somewhere below them a window-pane shattered, brought a jolt to Cleveland. Jesus, I think he's coming in. We need to call the cops. Lisa leaned in closer to him, a small smile on her wrinkled lips. They found me when I was twenty-two. I'd moved to the West by then, to Colorado, my past and my parents buried away. A few drops wouldn't do. No, they wanted all of it. But, you see, they thought I'd willingly sacrifice myself. Cleveland pulled himself up as she spoke, as the feet creaked along the wood somewhere in the kitchen, the front door rattling lightly. He tried to ignore her words to hear the sounds. Do you have a phone in here? he asked. Her smile shifted downward, stopped his search. I killed both men. I had to leave, of course, or else get caught for my crimes. Everywhere I went, the cult followed me as best they could. Cleveland closed his eyes, hands lightly shaking, trying to push aside everything else and focus on the most important information. I don't care what you've done or who you've hurt. I just care about making sure no one gets hurt right now, Cleveland whispered tried his best to map the house in his mind, figure some way out. But aside from a two-floor drop, their only exits would force them down the only staircase, and the only phone he knew about for certain was in his own room on the first floor. Lisa rode the bourbon around in the bottle, no hint of fear or tension in her body, smiling instead. As the noises below grew louder, Cleveland wanted to grab her shoulders, shake her back into reality. But instead he stared helplessly as she smiled up at him. I came here expecting to die, and I don't believe that's going to change now. After another gulp of bourbon, she opened the drawer in her nightstand again and pulled a knife out from beside the unopened bottle. I'd planned to kill myself at the first sign of trouble. But too much time passed, and eventually I thought they'd forgotten me. That can't be your only option, he said. He almost went for the knife to make sure she didn't hurt herself, didn't live out the end of the bizarre psychosis that seemed to plague her. If I slit my wrists now, the blood is theirs, and that's something I can't allow. From down the hallway Cleveland could hear voices, the creak of feet moving up the stairs. A window exists of a few hours at most before the taint is lost. God damn it! If those people mean to do you harm, we need to do something more than sit here babbling about nonsense. Sweat dribbled down Cleveland's forehead, back aching for him to sit but he remained by the cracked open door, peering at the shadows moving up the steps and the masked faces coming into view. No explanation for their presence came to mind, nothing that would make a group of men break into a house late at night, and each second brought them closer. I want you to take this, she handed him the knife. He looked wide-eyed between the knife and the door. I've never hurt anyone before, Cleveland whispered. I don't intend to hurt anyone, especially since I don't know what the hell is going on here. You've got to give me something more than demons and cults. 
I've told you all there is to know. Keep it behind you. He took the knife with sweaty, shaking fingers and slipped it into his pocket, careful not to stab himself in the leg in the process, and at least glad he didn't have to worry about Lisa attempting suicide. His eyes returned to the crack and the group of five men moving down the hall. Some courage, Lisa said, and held out the bottle to Cleveland. The action managed to draw a jittery smile on his lips. He never cared for liquor, let alone anything harder than beer or wine, but he suddenly felt as if the stuff had been created for moments such as these. He took the bottle and managed a long swig, throat and stomach searing hot, when the door slammed inward, clipping his arm, dropping him in a heap along the wall by the closet, the bottle still gripped tightly in his fingers. Two of the men entered, led by the stranger at the corner, a black mask now covering his face. Blue eyes stared through cut-out holes, lingering first on Cleveland's quivering form before shifting towards Lisa's calm composure. "'This ends,' the man said. The man motioned with his head. From the hallway came the remaining three. The foul smell wafting from the charred form they pulled into the room made Cleveland gag, made him appreciate the bottle he had free access to, the bourbon helping to dull his fear and sense of smell. The burnt monstrosity finally drew a reaction from Lisa. She rose, horrified, from her position on the bed. That's—we pulled it from the ashes. It still moves, with some vague resemblance of life. Cleveland could see it as well. The blackened flesh stretched thin over bone, shifting about like a dying animal waiting for the final moments to come, shriveled wings still visible on its back. Wet fluid ran slowly from the acrid sockets of its skull. "'Oh, Lord in heaven, this can't be real,' Cleveland whispered. "'So long as its blood remains alive, so shall its body.' the man said. When the final drop is squeezed from you, its passing will acknowledge our success. What about the man? one of them asked. The leader's gaze shifted towards Cleveland. Let him watch. Three of them grabbed hold of Lisa and held her to the bed, while the fourth pulled open a bag filled with needles and empty bottles. The leader stood back, the still-breathing remains of something Cleveland couldn't fathom shuddering on the floor, but he found his eyes locked with Lisa's instead. No fear disturbed her, only a grimace of pain when the needle tore into her. Her eyes held Cleveland instead, a smile curling the corners of her mouth, a certain expectant quality to her expression. In that moment he accepted the truth in every word she'd spoken. He couldn't say if the violence or the bloodletting or the pungent odor made his head swim, or perhaps even the alcohol he once again brought quickly to his lips, unable to stop it from running down his chin. The leader glanced back at Cleveland's jerky movement, smiled, attention returning to the thick red running through clear tubes. The sensation grew, burned through his veins, vision tinted around the edges right hand slipping into his pocket towards the handle of a weapon he didn't honestly believe he could wield or hadn't before. 
Now the thought sounded not only possible, but almost enjoyable. As the blade slipped from his pocket, he became aware of the odd coloration to the dark liquor. Deep within the brown floated a thin stream of red. How long ago had she spilled her blood into the bottle, Cleveland thought. The last sane thought he would have that evening. From there he knew only the raw burning in his muscles, the flashes of red, ragged flesh, and the wet grunts of violent death. Cleveland awoke to the piercing morning sunlight, and muscles sorer than any he'd felt in over thirty years. The stench made him gag before any memory could drift out of the haze his mind stumbled through. He sat against the wall in the hallway, his own bloody hands the first image his eyes saw before the bodies caught his attention. The walls were splashed red, wet floor shimmering. He crawled more than walked towards Lisa's bedroom, barely able to stand when he entered the worst of the carnage. Lisa lay spread across the bed, needle and plastic tube still stuck in her white arm, dried red crusted around the puncture wound. Her dead eyes stared vacantly at the ceiling, a smile large on her aged face. The soft shift of movement caught Cleveland's eye, and showed him the horrid creature, still shifting with vague life, no noticeable intelligence to any of the movements. His hand sought out his chest, pushed through a hole between the buttons, and rubbed gently against the wrinkled skin above his heart, pumping a different kind of blood. Tears rolled freely from him when he jerked away from the creature and Lisa's remains. He caught sight of the slick blade he'd murdered with, discarded along the baseboards. Eighty-one years of birthdays, of delivering mail for a living, attending family gatherings, throwing away advertisements, watching television and reading books, all suddenly hollow to him, a fantasy hiding away what Lisa had known from birth. Cleveland picked up the knife and held it close to him as he wept. He didn't want to make this decision. He sat on the top step and stared at the street outside the living-room window down below him. He wanted someone else to tell him he didn't have to do it, didn't have to decide or worry any more. He felt no fury, but only impotence. Whether they came for him, or he drove the knife into his heart right then, his life had ended. He pulled himself up and walked down the stairs to his room. He wanted to finish the book he'd been reading. He liked the idea of blocking out the insanity he'd witnessed and end an ordinary life with a mundane act, something Lisa, with all she knew, could never fully appreciate. It somehow felt right to him. That was Philip Roberts of the past, as read by Bob Newfeld. Wow. Two great narrators this evening. I can't get enough of Bob either. Bob Newfeld's first recordings for Tales to Terrify were two Karnacki stories, one by William Meekley, the other by William Hope Hodgson. His voice will be heard on our sister podcast, Crime City Central. In the meantime, you can find his recordings of complete works by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Joseph Conrad, Charles Dickens, Robert Louis Stevenson, and many others on LibriVox.org 
Link will be in the show notes. When he isn't recording, Bob works in the wide, wonderful world of human resources. Thank you, Bob. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.